the Night Owl Podcast, Campfire Episode 7, School Spirit. Welcome to the Night Owl Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Blue, and this is a place for all you restless spirits out there to tune in and hear true tales of the paranormal. I hunt these stories down, capture them from the mouths of those who experience them, and share them with you, right here. If you have a story to tell, we're currently looking for more personal ghost stories, so if you or someone you know has one, please submit it to us for consideration. Go to thenightowlpodcast.com, click on the Submit Your Story page, and let us hear your ghost story. We'd love to consider it for the show. In tonight's campfire, you're going to hear stories that revolve around a specific, and might I add, notoriously haunted school here in Austin, Texas. Its original building dates back to 1916, and when it was torn down in 1990, the spirits of the children said to be haunting this school didn't seem to like that much. So much so that it cost one of the construction workers doing the demolition their lives. Now, a newly erected school stands in its place, but the hauntings have not ceased. In fact, the stories have only grown in volume. So much so that when you search Metz Elementary on the internet, some of the first things you'll see pop up are the articles detailing its long-standing haunted history. Tonight, we'll hear from former teachers, students, and even those who once stepped foot in the old building, and the countless unexplained experiences they had in this historic East Austin school. Stay tuned. Before we begin the show, I have some very important announcements for everyone. First and most importantly, we are having a massive open call for ghost stories. We need them more than ever right now because our show is having two live events this October, less than two months away. We need to find 10 live storytellers to get up on the stage and share their personal ghost stories with a live audience. We're looking for dynamic stories that are unique and interesting and that can fill a 10 to 15 minute duration time slot. If you're selected as a live storyteller for us, there are perks and prizes that go along with the fact that you will be featured on the podcast and you and a guest are obviously invited to attend the event for free. We're currently looking for all types of ghost stories, but if you happen to have something that takes place in a rural setting, quiet and desolate place, or small town, we especially want those. So please don't hesitate. Tell those friends you know with great ghost stories to submit and get them to bring you as their guest, or you yourself submit too if you have a story. It's easy. Go to thenightowlpodcast.com and click on the Submit Your Story tab on the menu. That's www.thenightowlpodcast.com slash submit. Also, the Austin Chronicle Best of 2019 nominations have opened up and we need your help to get nominated. We were nominated last year without me even knowing it, so I had little time to actually campaign and try to win. But this year, we are prepared. Nominations are now open and they close on September 3rd. So go get your vote in. Go to theaustinchronicle.com to cast your votes. There are a ton of categories, but at the top of the ballot, you can jump to the politics and media section and fill us in on the local podcast section. Type in the Night Owl Podcast and submit your vote. And did you happen to miss our live events last October? Well, don't make the same mistake this year, because we have two incredible live events in store. Slated for October 12th, we're hosting a very special Night Owl Podcast event at the Spider House in Austin, Texas. This event will feature live ghost stories at one of our favorite haunts, as well as host a market of the macabre, with tarot card readers, food trucks, live music, campfires, s'mores, and an assortment of booths selling oddities, obscurities, and all things ghoulish. So mark those calendars and come enjoy an evening with your friends, us, and the spirits that haunt the Spider House grounds. Ticket info coming soon. 
To get first access to all our events and tickets, become a Patreon supporter today. Secondly, we will be hosting another Night of Ghost Stories at the 26th Annual Austin Film Festival. The date of this event is still to be determined, but it will happen sometime during the festival, which is October 24th through the 31st, and I'm hoping for Halloween night again. Selected storytellers for this event will actually receive a producer's badge to the festival and one complimentary seat for a guest at this specific event. For those of you not familiar with Austin Film Festival and the badges, a producer's badge gets you into everything. Parties, panels, films, you name it. It's a $650 value. So submit those ghost stories already, and I hope to have you on stage at our Night of Ghost Stories event at the Austin Film Festival in October. There will be general admission tickets for individual events available leading up to the fest, but if you want to check out films and the fest and truly experience what AFF has to offer, I suggest you check out their Film Pass, which gains you access to all the films at the fest plus our event. And right now, you can use our promo code NIGHTOWAFF, that's N-I-G-H-T-O-W-L-A-F-F, for $10 off. Go to austinfilmfestival.com and snag a film pass today. And don't forget to submit your ghost stories for consideration at thenightoutpodcast.com slash submit. This episode is brought to you by Oh Boy Print Shop. When you need custom t-shirts, this shop's got your back. At Oh Boy, they've made customer satisfaction and quality their top priorities. Their aim is to supply you with quality products that meet your every need. Specializing in custom screen printing for organizations, clothing companies, schools, businesses, and even events. Big or small, Oh Boy is here to help. Crisp, clean t-shirt printing without setup fees or hidden costs, and always delivered on time. Oboyprintshop.com. That's O-H-B-O-Y printshop.com. And now, mention the Night Owl podcast and get $50 off your first order. Metz Elementary is one of Austin ISD's oldest schools, established in 1916 on Willow Street in East Austin. At that time, this area was considered to be on the outskirts of East Austin. The school board that year decided that Spanish-speaking students in the area should attend a separate school where their needs could be better met. In an unprecedented move, many of the Mexican-American parents protested this decision and appealed to the school board to change their decision. The other school was several miles away, making transportation extremely difficult and the parents felt that if segregated, their children would not have the same opportunities as the English-speaking students. The school board quietly dropped the issue, and Spanish-speaking students were allowed to attend Metz Elementary School. Metz Elementary continued to serve students in the community for the next seven and a half decades. Just imagine, this school was educating our youth during the First World War from 1914 to 1918, World War II in the 40s, the Korean War in the 50s, the Vietnam War in the 60s and 70s. The school was witness to 14 different presidents during that span of time. In 1989, the school was deemed to be too small and too dilapidated to fit the needs of the community. The old school was demolished in September of 1990, and the new school was built in its place and opened in 1992. When I first moved to Austin around 2006, I quickly caught wind of the rumors, being someone interested in the paranormal. The word going around was that Metz was Austin's most notorious haunted school. But schools in the paranormal community are hard to investigate. There's a lot of red tape, so I pushed the thoughts of ever learning more behind the rumors aside and pursued other cases. But after starting this show more recently, I had someone reach out to me. She happened to be a former teacher at Metz Elementary, and she told me she had some stories to share with me. And so I began my dive into researching the paranormal accounts surrounding the infamously haunted Metz Elementary School in East Austin. Well, my name is Melanie. I've been in Austin now for 
about 19 years. I started there, the school where I worked, in 2010. And I remember the night before I was going in for my interview, I went ahead and looked up the schools, trying to find some demographics that might help me in the interview, and realized that once I put the, the name of the school you know, in my Google search, that it was nothing but paranormal websites. So for me, being the person that I am, that was just really intriguing. It wasn't scary. I wasn't afraid. I remember mentioning it to a couple of friends, and it was kind of exciting. I taught art at the school for about 16 years, and I first started teaching art there in 2003. And when I started teaching there, several of the teachers told me that the school was haunted. For example, one teacher said that she would stay late and that all the lights were out except in her room. And then, like, she'd be walking down to the teacher's lounge to go make a copy, and she'd notice, oh, there's a light on in that room, and that's unusual. And then it would be off later, but no one was in the building because we have to mark who's in the building, set the alarm if you're there late alone. And so she knew no one was in there, but strange things like the lights would go on in certain rooms and then off in certain rooms. And then another teacher shared with me that one time when she was there late, she heard next door that someone was like dropping a marble and she could hear it dropping on the floor. And she was like, I'm gonna, you know, who's over there? What's going on? And she went over there and no one was there. Nothing happened in the beginning right away. So first year started pretty calm in my classroom. About halfway through the year, there'd be times at the end of the day when I'd gather my students on the rug. I taught kindergarten, so we'd sit there and I'd be passing out folders to take home. And I noticed that they started asking me, well, what about her? I was like, who? And they would point under a table or in a corner or in the library section of our classroom. And, um, and so I'd ask them some questions like, who are you talking about? Their little girl. Doesn't she get a folder? I didn't see anybody. And so I would just say, well, you know, I don't see a backpack, so I don't have a folder, you know, to put in there. And so they would just shrug their shoulders and look away. And it was no big deal to them. It's not uncommon to find kindergartners who have imaginary friends or who talk to themselves. But it was pretty common to have kids talking to themselves in my classroom. And so that was just one thing that would happen from time to time. Um, it was not really a big deal. Like I said, five-year-olds can talk to the air and it's not anything that was really, for me, concrete. Things started off a bit quiet for Melanie and the former art teacher during the start of their time at Metz. But as they got more settled in, things would start to progress. And then other teachers would tell me like, oh, I stayed late and I was here alone and I could hear children in the hall laughing and talking. And so I was like, who's that laughing and talking? And so they would go out into the hall and look and lo and behold, no one was there. So I had been told all these stories and I was like, I don't know how I feel about that. And I really don't want to see anything. There was a substitute teacher that was in the classroom next to me. So our students were in art and in PE. She came over to get some information about the afternoon schedule. She was sitting across from me and behind her 
was a sink and a bookshelf that had some art trays on there. Because I kept looking, because I kept seeing them shimmy over just slightly, a little bit at a time. And then they all crashed and fell onto the floor. And across the room, it was it was as if they were shoved off the shelf, not just kind of accidentally fell off and were unbalanced. She was terrified. She didn't want to come back into my room. Nothing happened. It wasn't necessarily super scary, but it was enough to spook her. There was another time when I was at my door talking to a teacher. Um, So the door was slightly ajar. I was standing in the doorway. She was standing right in front of me. As we're talking, all of a sudden there's some knocks on the other side of the door. There's nobody on the other side. And then some giggles. There's nobody there. So we both kind of looked at it and we laughed it off. And that seemed pretty much the climate on that campus. Everybody knew about it, and it wasn't just necessarily set to one part of the school. There were definitely some hot spots, and there were some areas where kids would claim that they would either hear things, feel things, see things, teachers the same way, but it was really spread out throughout the whole campus. So my room particularly seemed to be pretty active, but it wasn't the only place on campus that was like that. I taught school during the day, and sometimes I would stay a little late or come a little early, but I never had any experiences. And if I was there late, I would kind of even say, like, I'm good. I really don't want to have any contact or see anything strange. And I tried to have the positive rapport with whatever spirits were there because I do believe in that sort of thing. So we would every year celebrate Dia de los Muertos and Dia 16 de Septiembre, And for Dia de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead, we always made an ofrenda, like an offering for people who had passed away and remembering the spirits of the dead. And I had these two giant paper mache skeletons that were life-size, and they were part of the display that we set up every year, and it would go in the hall. So there were the skeletons, and we had the flowers and pictures of people who had passed away and candles and artwork. So it it wasn't anything scary, like it's beautiful and it's all part of remembering people who have died in a happy way. And so in my art room, it was a big, or it is still a big, lovely room, but there's a closet in the back of the room where the kiln is for firing clay So you always keep that locked because it's a fire hazard if a child was to get in there and accidentally turn it on. So, And there's art supplies in there, and I would always lock my purse in there. And those skeletons were in that closet, in the back of the closet, and I had them sitting on a chair together. Like I stacked them up two on this chair. I only used them once a year for Dia de los Muertos, and the rest of the time they were just stored. So one day... Um, I came to school bright and early, and I went in my room. Everything looked normal, and I opened that closet door, went to put my purse in there, and the skeletons were not in the back of the closet. One of them was moved forward. The chair was, like, right in front of the door staring at me, and the skeleton was right there, and the other skeleton was, like, kind of like it was climbing up the shelves that were in there and I brought my purse ah, 
that? Like, what in the world? So after that happened, of course, I went straight to the vice principal and I was like, did you do this? <laughs> you know, because I was like, did you do this in the closet? Did you move this? And the, the vice principal and principal said, no, I, I mean, the, so they could have played a joke on me, but they were really like, no, we don't know what you're talking about. And the custodian, too, she was, it just would be totally out of character for her. She was like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. There was another incident where we were doing parent conferences after school. And so I had just finished with somebody and I was waiting for another parent to come. So we had four classroom computers that were against one wall. And so I took that time as I was waiting for the parent to show to go ahead and just shut down all of those computers. So I went one by one, shut them all down, saw that each single one of them had shut down, and then went over to the the classroom teacher um, next to me. I went over and through the hallway. And when I came back, they were all back on and they were all on a drawing application where, and there were just pink lines like scribbled all through the four computers, almost as if it went from like one through the other and it was adjoining, like didn't really necessarily make a picture, it was just scribbles. And I had her come over and look at it and she was, she was kind of spooked by it. There was a time that I came into my classroom in the morning and I kept hearing this sound and it was, as if somebody was using an electric pencil sharpener. I remember that being the first thing that I thought of. And it sounded like it was stuck and it kept making this weird sound. And I thought, well, you know, that's kind of weird that the teacher next door is sharpening so many pencils in the morning before school. I just let it go. And right before it was time to go get our kids at assembly, I went over to ask her a question and realized that the sound, there was nobody there. So the sound, wasn't necessarily coming from her classroom and I started to investigate in my classroom and there was an old boombox that I never used that was in a corner that was plugged in and there were two of the buttons it was play and I can't remember if it was like it might have been play and rewind that were both pushed down we didn't use cassette tapes I don't know where it came from how long it'd been in there so that was odd Melanie had many experiences which she was the sole witness to, but one particular night, she'd have another staff member validate one of her experiences. I would hear stories specifically from the secretary at the school. She had been there for like 20 plus years, and she had tons of, like a whole collection of stories of experiences that other people had that they would share with her. But one of the things that she would mention all the time, because she was oftentimes working later in the evenings or on the weekends when it was quieter, when she could get some work done, is that she could hear them running and playing in the hallways. And I had never experienced that until this one time when I was, I stayed late. It was after summer, I was teaching summer school on the same campus. And all of a sudden, I had music going in my classroom. I was cleaning up my classroom, and I could hear these kids just having a great time in the hallway. They were running, they were giggling, they were having fun. And my first thought was, it must be another teacher here that has their kids with them, and they're just running in the halls and having a good time. I realized that it's getting later. So I go into the office, which was actually directly across from my classroom, 
the secretary's there. I asked her how long she was going to stay so I could kind of time when I was going to leave. And she said, well, just let me know. How about, you know, is 30 minutes enough? And I said, yeah, that's fine. I can start wrapping it up. She's like, well, before you leave, stop in here. And I said, okay. And uh, she made an announcement on the PA system and said, hey, you know, weird. There's two of us that are here right now in the office. We're planning on staying for, you know, maybe a half, half hour longer. If you need to stay longer, please call the office so that we know not to set the alarm on you. And we kind of chatted a little bit. Nobody came. Went back to my classroom, finished up what I was doing, went back out and was there with her in the office. And she made another announcement. We started chatting. When I went back to my classroom, I heard more of that running around. And then I thought that time, because I didn't see kids, you know, and then I knew that nobody had responded to her first PA call, um, that I was like, well, you know, she sometimes had her granddaughters there that her son would come and pick up um, if she was watching them. So I go back, we wait, we're chatting, and nobody else is there. We set the alarm, we leave. And it wasn't until I was on my way home that I realized I was like, her granddaughters weren't with her. And if there weren't any other teachers on campus, and I heard them again after that first time I left, then who was it? And so it just stuck with me, it wasn't a big deal. The next morning, she was my first stop. <laughs> I went right into the office and I was like, hey, were your granddaughters here by any chance with you? And she was like, no. And she just had a nice big grin on her face and was like, you heard them too. And I was like, I did. She's like, oh yeah, they were having a ball. She's like, I hear that all the time when I'm here by myself. Melanie and the former art teacher also recounted many stories they heard their fellow staff recount during their time at METS as well. So there's been a lot of activity, a lot of experiences the secretary would tell me that there were times when they put in work orders to have things fixed in certain classrooms. One day she went into school and she had one of the teachers call her and say, hey, there's a tool belt and like some other things here. There's like half a job done in my classroom. Do you know the story behind it? What should I do with it? And it turns out that they had put in a work order for something to be fixed in her classroom. The guy who came to fix it started his job, realized that there were some other tools that he needed that were still in his truck outside. So he starts going through the hallways, walking to go get them. And he sees a little girl who's playing with a ball in the hallway. And his first reaction is to say, you know, hey, aren't you supposed to be with your teacher? And then it hits him that it's after school. There's nobody there. And there's this little girl in a white long dress with hair just kind of covering her face, bouncing this rubber ball, that in that moment he realized she was wearing like very out of fashion clothes. And that, again, it's after school, there's nobody there. Freaked him out, he ran to his truck, told his boss he was never coming back. The principal and the vice principal, they were looking at the security cameras one morning and they were like, well, this is strange. There's some movement here with somebody in here. And so they were watching it really carefully. And then they showed it to me and it was in the cafeteria. And there was a, there's a stage in the cafeteria too. And the movement went around the cafeteria and like up on the stage, but it was strange because it went like into the wall and you know, not like a person would, like kind of melted into the wall and then came back out again and around, yeah, like went up on the stage and 
but yeah, so that was the weird part is how it kind of melted into the wall and then came back out. They had that on tape, so that was pretty wild. There was a time when we were doing our fall festival that we had, you know, kids in costumes and they were restricted to only certain parts of the campus. Kind of the specials wing where the art class was, where the music classroom was, the gym and the uh, cafeteria. And then there were some outdoor activities as well. At one point, there's a group of us, teachers and administrative staff that are in the office and somebody's noticing on the security cameras that there are these orbs that are kind of flying around on one of the in one of the wings that where no one was allowed so the principal and assistant principal decide to go check it out while the rest of us kind of stay in there so we see them walking around we see them walking in the hallways we see them go to the area where we had noticed a lot of activity and they're standing there and they have their walkie-talkies we have the other ones and they're walking around they're like we don't see anything there's nothing here but yet on the camera we could see these round orbs flying around them as they're walking down the hallway and that was kind of awesome I don't know it was kind of neat it wasn't recorded I wish that it were but down that wing as well there were always people who heard things who saw things there were always classrooms where things were falling off walls The secretary also had stories of people doing landscaping that would see things out there as they were landscaping. What was interesting is that some of those stories actually involved seeing soldiers or young men in like uniform. So not children, like what people usually would see or hear when they had experiences on campus. Not necessarily that school building, but that campus is is a very old one, the the grounds that the school is built on. It's been over a hundred years that this school has been there. I've heard this school was possibly built on land that was a cemetery at one time, and that that could be part of the explanation. It's over a hundred years old, a long time ago. And then when they rebuilt it, the new building, 1992, there was an accident with the construction and someone died. And so, people say that that could be the spirit also but then a lot of people say that the spirits are children so that's where maybe it was a burial site or something that's that's what I've been told as to why there might be hauntings there when we get back from this short break we'll hear from a former student of Metz who attended school immediately upon the opening of the new building Danny sheds light on what students would experience on campus during the early 90s, reveals his very own personal experience, and brings to my attention that a psychic was called to come and communicate with the spirits of the children haunting the building during the old building's demolition. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Oh Boy Print Shop, custom printed t-shirts made in Austin with love. Have you ever ordered custom tees from an event or bought some from your favorite band or company, only to realize that they're thick, scratchy, and look like you're wearing a bag that isn't very flattering on you, that's one thing that won't happen to you when you're with Oh Boy Print Shop. They offer a variety of t-shirts to provide the right choice to meet your needs. I myself prefer comfortable, slightly fitted tees that look and feel awesome enough to wear every day, either by themselves or under a throwover shirt or sweater. Oh Boy Print Shop helped me pick out a tee that fit those needs, and honestly, when I open my closet in the morning, I skip all my other tees and go straight for the night owl shirt, 
because it's the most comfortable and flattering tee in my entire closet now. Oboy's aim is to provide you with the options that help you get the product that meets your every need. So, there's no more need for hesitating. Order your first batch of custom printed tees with Oboy Print Shop today, and you'll be in great hands. Plus, now you can get $50 off your first order by simply mentioning the Night Owl Podcast. So what are you waiting for? Visit oboyprintshop.com. That's O-H-B-O-Y printshop.com. After speaking with Melanie and the former art teacher at Metz, I wanted to get a student's perspective, and it wasn't easy finding people willing to talk. But searching through the articles and stories online, I found a student who had edited a video about his personal experience while attending Metz in the early 90s. His name was Danny, and after reaching out to him on Facebook, he agreed to hop on a call with me. Hi, my name is Danny. I was born and raised in Austin, Texas. While I was there, I attended a particular elementary school that is known for its paranormal activity. I started there in about 1992. Uh, During that time, I wasn't familiar with the paranormal aspect of the school until a little later on down the road. At that time, it seemed that there was certain, I guess, hot spots in the school in certain areas that had a little more activity than the next. I would say usually the gymnasium and the cafeteria and the uh, bathroom areas seem to be the most common areas for the uh, activity. I believe I was about seven when this first started happening. And it seemed that we're all one day just having lunch in the cafeteria. And uh, I guess a particular friend of mine had uh, dared me to go ahead and check out some of these areas alone, not really thinking much of it. So I went ahead and took him on that dare. Dared me to go into the the bathroom alone. I'm like, this is not really a big deal because everybody, you know, does this. So go ahead, took him up on the dare, went into the the bathroom alone, kind of stood there for a minute, started hearing some Pretty strange things, uh, doors, like a screen door, opening and shutting, uh, horses galloping, dice being, you know, like somebody's like a, in the casino or something. And a lot of, a lot of sounds didn't, didn't make sense for, for the bathroom. It just didn't add up. You know, spooked me out quite a bit. You know, ran out of there, went back to the cafeteria, you know, let them know what I heard, let them know what's happening and just kind of pretty shocked actually. So I continue on my day, get home, I guess a couple hours go by, and then I start hearing things at my home. That's when I knew, you know, those definitely, in fact, real. Uh, you know, being a, a seven-year-old kid, sometimes you might think it's just in your head or just not really sure what to believe at that time, but as the more time had gone by, I would definitely... Uh, notice it more frequently and kind of when to expect it. From there on, I just kind of almost became became used to this activity where it really wasn't a fear, more of like a everyday occurrence at that point. So I went there from kindergarten to sixth grade and then, you know, graduated. Started there in 92, believed, ended there in the mid-90s, a little bit after that. There were always kids talking about seeing, feeling, hearing things in one of the main bathrooms that was just down the hall from the cafeteria. I know I had students 
who, when it was time, that was a bathroom we would use before leaving, um, leaving lunch and then going to recess. It was on the way. We'd do a bathroom break, and I always had students who would just run in and run out because they were afraid because they would see things in the mirrors or see people inside the bathrooms. I definitely did some research on the school. Turns out there was a uh, TV program, I believe, done by either ABC or NBC, I'm not sure. The series was called Haunted Lives, and they had done an episode about the same exact school that I went to. Come to find out, there was a uh, construction crew there in, in 1990 that had a lot of trouble building on this plot of land. I know that there was a Unsolved Mysteries episode dedicated to it. There's another show that did an episode dedicated to that campus as well. Those stories are a little different and it all sorts to stem around the time that they were demolishing the old school to build the new building and you know just lots of trouble with keeping people hired in the construction team you know they heard things they would hear the laughter they'd hear the children see things on blackboards being written people being knocked off ladders um, machinery that just all of a sudden stopped when they were about to knock over walls they even had a medium brought in by the name of Elaine Ireland. They even had an exorcism performed on the grounds. It kind of stopped the hauntings for a while, temporarily for the crew to finish working. But soon after, it would continue. Apparently, even a wall came crumbling down on somebody. And then, of course, you know, there was somebody who died during that process of, of them um, tearing down the building. Um, sometime shortly after the construction company owner decided to just have somebody come and bless the site to kind of appease his workers to say, you know, look, it's, it's nothing, but if it makes you feel better, you know, let's have this person come out and bless it so that you're more comfortable coming to work. And the uh, person in charge of this construction crew was a man by the name of Joe Torres. Uh, his crew never completed construction there in 1990, but they finally did build it, I believe, in, in the middle of 1991. I mean, eventually it was built, so did, they didn't stop it from being built, so who knows what else was going on. Uh, what struck me as being the most relatable to my personal experience was the son of Joe Torres, Gabriel Torres. He had talked about going into the particular bathroom in the area that is now the boys' bathroom of the elementary school and the gymnasium, and feeling a cold breath go through his body that gave him a chill that made the hair on the back of his neck stand up, and hearing children playing, and just things that didn't make sense being not being fully built yet, of course, and uh, that particular experience was very similar to my experience. So I end up, you know, really getting into that. They do a pretty good job of telling you the people's names, the medium's name, the time frame. Not sure how much of it was exaggerated and how much of it was exactly true, but uh, very curious. There's been a lot of speculation as far as the history of the land and being a, a lot of folklore and and legend, it was kind of open for interpretation. But the fact of the matter is it definitely was experiencing paranormal activity. We just couldn't pinpoint where it began. I guess my, my thoughts on it now is I have a newfound respect for the paranormal. 
definitely look at it in a whole new light. I would like to know more about the property as far as what I learned from the uh, documentary. Maybe even get to talk to the medium they had there. After talking with Danny, I wanted to take a closer look at this Haunted Lives episode that he and Melanie had referenced during our interviews. It wasn't available anymore, but Danny had a VHS copy that he'd ripped and put on YouTube. So I checked out the link, and the episode did in fact feature a story of the demolition crew and the unexplained events they experienced while trying to tear down the old Mets building. I saw all the details that Danny and Melanie had mentioned, including the psychic named Elaine Ireland they brought to the building to communicate with the spirits. When I finished the video, I decided to try to see if Elaine Ireland was still around and living in Austin, Texas. To my surprise, she was, and she had a Facebook page. She was 75 years old now and still working as a psychic in Austin. I messaged her, not really thinking I'd get a reply, but she responded, and we set up a call. Like Danny, I too was curious to hear what really happened back in 1990 when the crew tried to tear down this old school. I was curious if the rumors were all true or if this was all just fabrication. I was about to find out. This is Elaine, Ireland. I am a practicing psychic from Austin, Texas. I feel fortunate in that I was able to develop my abilities and use them as they were needed for the public and requested. I do tarot work. I do psychic work. I do mediumship work. I've been using my abilities since I was 17, and I'm in my 70s now, so I've been at this for a while. So I'm lucky to be able to, at least I consider myself lucky, to be doing this work. I love it. That's how I became involved in this wonderful elementary school experience here in Austin. And I was called, I believe it was somebody that was connected to the priest that had already been called in to do a blessing and a clearing for the school. The priest was from San Antonio. I remember a female voice asking me if I would go to the school, if she could get permission. And I said, yes, I I will be glad to. I was teaching at the time. So I asked for the afternoon off, and I left and drove over to this elementary school, looked around and said, how can I help? And they told me what they wanted me to do. I It was a demolition site at the time. I met the owner of the demolition crew, who was a very sweet man, and his son and workers. But when I got there, there were all kinds of equipment sitting around. Some was being used. The school had had a renovation. I don't know how long before these events started, but it was a new addition of a basketball court. And I had heard that there had been a fire on two corners of that basketball court. Some damage had been done, but certainly not huge fires, just enough to get attention and to distract, I believe, the workers from the demolition of the main classroom areas. They were being very careful and taking things down very carefully, pretty good-sized crew. By that time, equipment had stopped functioning, watches had stopped functioning, and just about the time when school would be out, 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they would hear laughter in and around the school. Well, originally when that started happening, the guys that were working thought that it was children out in the playground area because all of those students had been sent to another school because theirs was being torn down. Keep in mind that this was a school that has been open for many, many, many years. Many generations had gone there. And over a period of time, that neighborhood 
had become a fairly poor neighborhood. So for a lot of children, that was a place where they got fed. That was breakfast and lunch. And sometimes that was the only time they got to eat. It was a place for safe naps. It was a safe place for for teachers to hug them and be gentle with them, but also teach them discipline because by that time frame, daddies were working, mommies were working, grandparents often were raising the children. That particular school in a poor part of town was the safest place for at least three generations, if not more. And we're talking about going through World War II, Vietnam War, Gulf War, all of that. There was a nurse on staff for a long time, so they got their ouchies taken care of. They were told when they needed glasses, and quite often things like that were paid for by the school. Not the public school system, but that school, and sometimes by people who worked there. So when all of this started happening and the construction was stopped or destruct construction was stopped because of the children and the apparitions that scared the, the workers so badly. They hear this laughter in the afternoon around school getting out time and it scared the workers to the point to where they wouldn't even go in the school after two or three o'clock. They wait until they didn't hear the laughter anymore and then they go in. But when they were in the schools, couple of events were people looking in mirrors and children were looking back at them. Again, in different generational clothing, which was confusing to them. There were circles seen, um, children in circles playing, kids playing jacks, just children doing what children do. One guy walked into a classroom and there was a teacher there teaching a class, blackboard and all, and when he, he was startled. Turned around, turned around again, they were gone. Keep in mind that they also had knocked walls out on the second floor. So there was actually nightlight coming through. They were trying to remove bricks. They were trying to remove things that they'd been asked to remove as a construction company for to be reused. So it was a little, the layout was a little confusing. They gave me a hard hat. Some guys walked around with me kind of fly by. I was I had just come from my own school setting. So I was very sensitive to what was going on in that school setting. There were some ladies on ground. I met one teacher that was there that day. Things like teachers and so forth would parents even would wander through as the crews would let them. So they were standing around and there were also some people some that, that had brought snacks and food for the construction workers and they were on the ground. Talked a little bit with them as I was leaving. But there was this real heavy sense of being afraid amongst the workers. And not long after I was there, um, a young man died there. As you read about it, the word to the public was that a wall exploded, not what happened. And I'd like to set that straight because of the man who died there. The man was a young man, and he was a friend of the family that was doing the demolition. It is my understanding that he had been in jail. I don't know for how long. The the construction man was kind enough to take responsibility for him and say, come home with me, I'll 
told the, the, the court system that I'll put him to work and so, so on and so forth. Okay, he ate his lunch. He went back in the building, did his work, got spooked, came out, said, I'm not going back in there. I'm not, I'm not going to go back in there. Management said, okay, take a break, think about it. He was walking to his truck. The people who were also on the ground taking a break, eating their lunch, doing whatever they were doing, looked up, and the second floor wall, what was left of the wall, moved out and then fell on him. And supposedly he was killed instantly. So that's a truth that needs to come out about how that man died. Now, why it is said the wall exploded, I, I don't know. Elaine wanted to be very clear that the TV episode lied about how the young man had died on the construction site. The video reenactment shows that the wall exploded on him violently. In actuality, the wall fell on him. Many of the articles written about this accident seem to detail it correctly also, mentioning that the wall crumbled down on top of the victim. But Elaine wanted to go on record that despite her trying to correct the TV producers, they still went with the wall explosion on the TV episode. Those kids lived there, loved being there. So it makes perfect sense to me as a psychic that they wouldn't want anybody to destroy their home. And that's what these men were doing. Yes, the children understood that. They were told repeatedly that we're not taking your home away from you. We're tearing this down to make a better one, a nicer one. We're not trying to chase you off. Be patient with us. We're going to build a better place for you. But the kids, and even adults, there were adult spirits that hung around there too, like one of the nurses, two of the nurses actually. Even some teachers were identified as being in spirit form. They protected the children. They taught the children. They cared about the children. They cared about the families. That was a fairly small community at the time. You could safely say it was part of the village that made up this much larger town, and everybody knew everybody. So there was closeness there. I have to share, as a matter of disclosure, that my aunt who has been gone for many, many years. She died probably 10 years more or so ago, and she died at 103, and she taught at this school. So even as a kid, I knew of it and had been on its grounds several times, not often, but several times. So I was familiar with both the neighborhood as well as the school. Like the school, then the community there wasn't um, as busy and tight as it is now with buildings. The uh, school happens to sit on a piece of land that during wartime, many wars ago, it was a hospital space. Not a big building, probably more tents than anything else, but other people walked on that property and cared about it. And then there were homes on that land before the land, before the homes were taken away and the school was built. So there was a lot of safety there. It makes sense. I understand that when the school was completely torn down, and I did go over there before they started building the one that is in existence now, and I sat in my car and I, I 
something said, don't get out of your car. It was right at dusk. So I just sat there, said a prayer, and wished everyone well. The children were still there. They, they hadn't gone anywhere. But it is my belief that the structure means something to the children. But even without the structure, the school is still in their vision. It still exists. But a wonderful school has been built. Uh, one of the things that the city council did, which I thought was wonderful, was they literally did an all-call through the local newspaper, which at that time was widely spread, and ask for any artwork that could be validated that came from that particular school, any generation. It, it didn't matter how old it was. And they got thousands and thousands of pieces. They transferred it to tiles. They used those tiles at right under roof level all the way around the school as a sense of honoring past generation. So our school system and city tried to honor past generations. That was one way of doing that. And when the school was dedicated, they did a lovely service. I got to read it. I did not get to attend it. I was out of town. And the mayor was there, and church representatives were there. So they did a, they went above and beyond to dedicate this school historically. And now I can drive past there, and kids are playing, kids are doing everything they need to do. There are some extra buildings because it has expanded. The town, the, that area has expanded, has expanded. So I suspect, and I would love to be able to go back over there. Maybe I should do that. Maybe I should call the principal and ask permission to come over and walk the halls and see what I pick up. Some of the things that, that happened with the construction workers, especially on the upper floors, I, I can see why seeing those children scared them so badly. I think anybody would be a little bit afraid if they looked in a mirror and they realized that they weren't seeing a reflective image. You're looking at someone and almost as though you're looking through glass, not a mirror. I can understand why that would frighten somebody who's not familiar with spirit. That would probably scare you, too. I live in a rather strange world. I work in a rather strange world, so I can't say I do that every day, but it's not unfamiliar to me what they were talking about and how the children were behaving and laughing and getting their attention and following them around. So it must have been frightening to them. But those of us that work in the field, we don't have a choice and we get to grow our ability. And it was an honor to have worked with those children. They, they walk among us, so to speak. They help us. They love us from afar. They play with us if we'll let them. In fact, one of the ladies that was on the ground when I was leaving, she was standing under a tree and she walked towards me and in her beautiful Spanish language that I could not understand, but her husband translated for me, she said, she says they just wanted somebody to play with them. And I had to giggle and give her a hug because I think that's partially true. Those children were used to playing with adults and didn't understand why their loved place was being torn down and they were trying to stop it. They never lost 
the structure spiritually in their realm. In their realm, that school can still be there. <clears throat> and even in their mindful realm, can still look like it did when it was being demolished. It just happens to be a new building now. But yet, those walls, as they remember it, will always be there. So, hopefully, they are more at peace. And maybe by now, some of the other generations that went there join them. And that would be nice for me to think of. Maybe some teachers. Maybe even my aunt, who taught there so many years ago, has gone back there to say, hey, I need to check in with her and see about that. I mean, it was not uncommon to be leaving school late and see that we were on the haunted tour. You know, there would be vehicles that would come by talking about the school. Um, and we would just wave at people <laughs> as they came by. It was never a scary place. And I would say the entire time I was there, I was there on campus for five years. The entire time having those kinds of experiences were never uncomfortable, they were never scary, and then there, of course there were staff there on site that said that were really non-believers that would say that they never experienced anything and they thought that it was just a figment of everybody's imagination and people getting caught up in the stories. But for the most part, everybody seemed to be okay with them. I don't think that there was anybody necessarily that I ever met that felt that it was a negative presence there on campus. I've always heard with all the stories that it's kind and not evil or wicked. It's kind of playful and funny, and I think that's important to know. I still go back and visit my friends there sometimes. I can't say that I've noticed anything, or I mean, it's the same school building, and it doesn't feel creepy, it doesn't feel scary. No one I know has ever felt afraid to stay there after hours. They're friendly ghosts. I was going to wrap up this campfire here, but I actually got a unique opportunity. Elaine, after nearly 30 years, would join me in walking the new halls of Metz Elementary for the first time on August 6th. It's August 6th. We're here at Metz Elementary School with Elaine Ireland, standing just in the back parking lot. How are you doing? He's bumpy. Yeah? Right about where that car starts. It was like, okay... Here, we're standing in the visitor parking lot of the school. Yeah. That's what I was trying to get a feel for where the buildings were then. Yeah. The, the school was still that way, obviously, but this was a gym area, I think. Okay. And that's where the fires were. These buildings were not here at that time. Those little... Yeah, the little portables. See what I mean by tiles? That's them, okay. So that's all the artwork that you were talking about. Yeah, then they made them into tiles. That's neat. We made our way inside, and Elaine made many stops. She was drawn to the cafeteria, gymnasium, bathrooms. She felt the children's presence strongly in these areas. Then we moved on and ventured down every hallway, until Elaine was drawn to enter a few rooms. Come on. No harm meant. No harm meant. No harm meant. What are you sensing? Giggles. Like hide and seek. Mm-hmm. Giggles. Just giggles. And it's all girl giggles. Girl? Coming back from over there. Okay. Girl giggles. And heavy breathing like nap time. Okay. That's over there. See, there's no 
There's no fear anymore. There's, there's just, okay. It's good. Elaine felt great about returning to Mets after all this time. And she was very happy to report that the kids were happy too. She also believes that many of the former teachers and nurses who've passed on return to this place often. But on this day, she actually did not run into her aunt. The staff at Mets that day were kind and friendly to us and shared with us the countless stories that they all still experience to this day. Out of respect, they wish that these be off the record, and I want to honor that. This historic school meant a lot to so many generations in this community, so it doesn't surprise me that, if there is an afterlife, those who once found sanctuary here would want to return to it. Thanks for listening to our seventh Campfire episode of the Night Owl Podcast. I'd like to thank my team, Sarah, Alexis, and Franklin, for going on these crazy adventures with me, Nicholas Fair and Petey Wilder for your talented musical contributions to the show, Jennifer for keeping us organized and on schedule, as well as assistant editing, my dad, Sam, for his historical research assistance, Alex for his help assistant editing, and my very supportive wife, Tao, for sticking with me all these late nights and long hours, and for taking amazing photographs on every case. And last but not least, David Dalton of Driftworks Sound for mastering every single episode on the tight turnarounds I give him. Please support their works by visiting our website, thenightowlpodcast.com, and clicking on the About tab. There you can find links to all their individual works and websites. And a special thanks to the story sharers of this episode. Danny is a local musician, so I'll be sure to put a link to his works on this episode's blog. I'll also include a link to his YouTube video of the Haunted Lives episode on Mets Elementary. And a very special thank you to Elaine Ireland for going out of her way to help us on this episode. She is still a working psychic, and you can find her on Facebook, as I did, or you can visit her website, ElaineIrelandPsychic.com. And to help keep this show going, and my team and I fed and caffeinated, please support us for as little as a dollar a month on our Patreon page. This contribution not only helps me keep this show alive, you gain access to a ton of cool behind-the-scenes stuff. So please visit patreon.com backslash the Night Owl podcast and become a Night Owl patron today. And a special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Oh Boy Print Shop. If you have the need for custom t-shirt printing, you can feel at ease in the hands of Oh Boy Print Shop. Be sure to mention the Night Owl podcast to get $50 off your first order. And don't forget to stop by the Clay Pit in Austin, Texas and ask for the Night Owl Hidden Spirits menu. Grab a special haunted cocktail and support the show. Thank you all, and stay restless out there. This podcast was mastered by David Dalton of Driftwork Sound. If you're ready to up the production quality of your podcast or music, go to driftworksound.com. That's D-R-I-F-T, worksound.com. And get your project mixed, mastered, or produced using well-established methods and unconventional techniques. That's driftworksound.com. And remember, your first master is completely free. This is just another little added Easter egg. I couldn't fit into the episode itself, but I really care about this and wanted to share with you some insight into some real issues surrounding the topic of gentrification and how it's impacting communities like that of Mets and many East Austin neighborhoods and schools. My friend Natalie works in education, actively does work to address and bring attention to issues like this, and here she'll shed more light on the climate currently in this community. Well, I'm Natalie, and I work at an organization that partners with schools in Austin 
And I don't know a whole lot about the particulars of METS, and I definitely don't consider myself any expert on the school system or the challenges it's facing, but I have tried to educate myself on the challenges that the schools we partner with are facing, so I can certainly share a little bit about what I've learned. What we've seen going on is that As properties values rise in Austin, and particularly in East Austin, um, property taxes go up. Uh, It makes the cost of living really high for the families who have been in East Austin for a long time. So it's really pushing longtime residents. um, And because of the history of segregation across the country, and particularly in Austin, that's people of color, it's uh, black families, Latino families. Um, those families are getting pushed out. Families of any demographic with school-age kids are getting pushed out. Um, they're getting pushed further and further out into rural areas, suburban areas. And another thing we're seeing is a lot of uh, recruitment from charter schools, just in general, but I think it's particularly acute in East Austin. Um, I mean, and that's kind of a complicated issue. Not all charters are the same. Not all charters are bad. Uh, but I think we can say that it is helping to drive down enrollment at public schools, where, particularly where recruitment is high. So that's causing some really big challenges for these longtime historic neighborhood schools in East Austin that have really uh, been really important to communities of color. Um, Because they're under-enrolled, they're more likely to be closed. And because of the history of of racism and how that has worked, uh, some of those school buildings are the most kind of run down and in need of renovation. So that factors into the school district's decision as well as what schools are going to tear down and which ones they're not. Um, And then another piece of this whole puzzle, which is kind of complicated, so I don't know how deeply I want to get into it, but basically since the ASD is a high property tax value district, they send money back to the state and then the state distributes that money to uh, other districts where they don't have the same kind of property tax value where it's lower. Um, it's called the Robin Hood plan, which sounds like a good idea. It sounds like the kind of thing that I would generally be in favor of. But the problem is that they're, the formulas they use to calculate how much it costs to run a school district are really out of date. So the numbers that they have that they're using to calculate what AISD needs to run their school district and the actuality of how much it actually costs AISD just don't match up. I know AISD has been working hard to give the public and as many opportunities as possible to weigh in on the process and weigh in on how these decisions are going to be made. So I think if folks want to know more about this and want to be involved in how these decisions are made, they should just keep an eye on AISD's website and social media um, and look for opportunities um, for when they're getting public input. The time for them to take in public input might be drawing to a close. I do think they're going to announce some decisions really soon. 
And then, uh, honestly, I think things are going to get really interesting after that because Austin isn't really the kind of city to just take stuff lying down. I think I think if people aren't happy with, with the decisions, they're probably going to be organizing. So um, I think if folks just kind of keep an eye out on social media for people who are in part of these different school communities, they might see some activity. I really I would be shocked if there wasn't. So AISD has found itself in a really pretty severe budget crisis. So they're definitely going to be um, consolidating and closing some schools soon. Um, They're actually just about to announce which ones really soon. Uh, So it's kind of a a scary time for the legacy of these really precious neighborhood schools. So I'll be holding the families of Mets and all those spirits in my heart. 